0: Welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. Before we get to the show, let's get the pleasantries out of the way. First of all, our website.
1: If you want more information about our little podcast, go to wearethecontrarians.com. That's where you'll find links to our old episodes, to our Patreon channel, and to our awesome Contrarians merch.
0: You can show your support by buying a Contrarians mug or a pillow. I like the laptop bags myself. Second of all, if you enjoy the show, tell your friends. Or even go a step further and leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcasts.
1: Finally, if you want to reach out directly to us, that's what social media is for. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at Contrarian Prime or check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Contrarian Prime.
2: Julio
0: runs our official Twitter account at Contrarian Prime, but if you want to give me a piece of your mind or just want to banter about pro wrestling, you can follow me at Contrarian Alex.
1: That's it. That's our intro.
0: Now, time for the show.
1: And we are recording for Contreras Corner for Psycho,
0: original, and the remake at the end. <laughs> it's time to to meld worlds here. Two different eras, two different times. Like, we have to uh, outdo Soderbergh. Yes, uh, and finally, at long last, be the ones to bring together... Uh, the parallels between Anthony Perkins and Vince Vaughn. But hello, and welcome back to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. My name is Alex, joined as always by my cohort and uh, partner in this travel down the path of the contrary, Julio Oliveira. Julio, uh, we're joined by, we got a full house today, but we'll get to that in just a moment here. Uh, Here, like you said, to discuss the Alfred Hitchcock classic uh, alleged from 1960. Uh, psycho, and then it's Gus Van Zandt, uh, straight homage, like a fucking wedding cover band, the 1998 Psycho.
1: <laughs> there's no reimagining
0: here. <laughs> are, are you ready to step into the shower to check into the Bates Motel and discuss this at full length? I mean, there's quite a lot to tackle here. <laughs> I'll do my best, Alex.
1: I'm I'm excited. This is a, this is a special episode that is uh, probably one of the most appropriate October episodes we've done. Uh, it always feels like we forget that Halloween season is happening when we make our schedule ahead of time. But this time, it it I think it worked out because you know there's there's nothing scarier than Gus Van Sant remaking <laughs> your movie shot by shot.
0: <laughs> so. We're going to introduce our guests in just a moment, but we're quickly going to go ahead and explain what it is we do here on The Contrarians, just in case this is your first time joining us. Uh, If that's the case, thank you so much. If you're a returning listener, give us just a moment here while we explain what it is we do. Uh, Here on The Contrarians, we like to rage against the Rotten Tomatoes machine. Find a movie on Rotten Tomatoes that is highly rated, a lot of times known as Certified Fresh. And what we'll do is uh, bring that movie down to size, talk about uh, some questionable choices in it, poor acting, bad direction, bad score, what have you. Uh, Conversely, find a movie on Rotten Tomatoes that is lowly rated, one of those nasty green splotches known as Rotten. And as you would guess, hype that movie up, talk about its redeeming merit, some good acting Bold cinematography, storytelling choices, et cetera, et cetera, all in an effort to say, you know, number one, that this shit is subjective. You can be as over the moon about something as you want to be or as cynical about something as you want to be if you truly set your mind to it. And that number two, those Rotten Tomato scores don't always tell the whole story. Uh, we are balancing both sides of the teeter-totter here today uh, in that the original Psycho from 1960 currently stands at a whopping 96% on Rotten Tomatoes, while the uh, very ill-received 98 remake stands at 38%. So what we'll be doing in this first half here is uh, basically recounting the plot of the original, which you know is the second as well, or the remake, excuse me. And talking about maybe some ways that the remake did it better. Some things it did a little bit better. Uh, But that comprises the first half of our show. The first part known as Contrarian's Corner. Julio, if listeners want to know how we really feel about what we're discussing. In this case, the psychos. They just have to tune into the second part of the episode.
1: (laughs) That is correct. The second part of the show. Aptly titled Real Talk is where we get real. This is where we forget about the gimmick. And we just tell you how we really feel about the movies. This is... Obviously, a very special episode. We're, we're doing two at once, like both ends of the spectrum, fresh and rotten, united together. This is a movie that's the same, but it's not the same. So there's no way that we could do this on our own. Not only are our guests going to help us during Contrarian's Corner, but also during Real Talk by really digging into what makes these two movies alike and what makes them different. Uh, you've heard them here before. Uh, most of them, at least. One of them first came on his own during the Goodwill Hunting episode, a movie also directed by Gus Van Sant. Mm-hmm. Uh, then he brought two more people over to uh, our super popular Fury Road episode. And now they brought one more of their gang over to the Contrarians. Next time they come, I'd probably be the full family. Uh, <laughs> but give it up for the franchise killers. We can't be stopped.
3: It's the whole <laughs> horde over <laughs> taking over. Uh, yeah, there's too many of us. Sorry. <laughs>
4: I was, was going to bring up, if you didn't, that it's uncanny that out of the three movies I've done now, two of which are done by Gus Van Sant, which is yeah, I weird. I don't know why
3: I didn't even think about that. Yeah. I think I didn't think about that because I never thought that Gus Van Sant would follow
4: Goodwill Hunting with a <laughs> well, Psycho remake. I, well, if you look at his filmography, it's like, how did we end up with this in the middle of his work? But usually you get a blank
3: check after you do something like Goodwill Hunting that's exactly. so huge. And then he's like, I'm just going to do I know what I'm this. doing. <laughs> <laughs> like that's, that's usually when you dust off the cobwebs off a script that you've been working on forever. And it's like, we're making this. You know what the <laughs> studio probably said? What are you, psycho? True. <laughs> <laughs> <Boo. laughs> anyway, thank, thank, thanks for having well,
4: I'll be here all night.
3: Thanks for having us back. Uh, I, I, I can't believe it after the... Uh, the the editing job that the infamous editing job that you had to do on our uh, past episode so <laughs>
1: <laughs> well let's get you introduced there there may be people that are here for the first time because this is the first Hitchcock movie we've ever done the first <clears throat> Anthony Perkins we've ever done uh, or maybe people that loved our Fred Claus episode so much that they are like we're coming back whenever you bring Vince Vaughn back to the Contrarians so tell us your names tell us uh, what you do and then we'll get into Contrarians Quarter.
3: I'm Reese one of the hosts of Franchise Killer. I'm Irina. I'm David. And you've got AJ. Basically, we roundtable each host picks a mini-series of films that have a a theme to them that is similar, and we pick a franchise that fits into that mold, and we go through that franchise one by one and come to a determination as to where this franchise faltered and what was the kind of death blow for that franchise and ultimately at the end of it we determine whether or not this franchise is dead or dormant Uh, most recently we did the Terminator franchise and so that's in the can Julio you were a guest on the Terminator Salvation the upcoming episode there may be out by the time that uh, this episode releases and that was a heck of a lot of fun um so yeah, that's that's that. And not always, you know, multi-part franchises also want to be franchises that ended after one. Yeah, one-offs. Yep.
1: And uh, spiritual franchises as well. I-
3: exactly. We do a little bit of that too. Like, <laughs> so we haven't covered it yet, but like it, it, I would say there's an argument for the Cornetto trilogy being a quote unquote massive quote unquotes uh, <laughs> franchise. So.
1: Yeah, well, just not too long ago, it might have been right before Terminator, maybe a couple of cycles before that, but uh, when Irina did, was it, I guess it was sort of like weird coming-of-age movies, was that the yes. yeah, <laughs> the yeah. <overall? laughs>
2: Yeah, I was stringing those yeah, together.
4: I think we came to the conclusion it was called surreal youth, <laughs> I, that, which I mean you could put any name you want on it at this point. So yeah,
3: like Donnie Darko and Jennifer's Body and if, m- movies like that. Well, and life, somehow.
2: life is strange movies. Yeah, basically. that's probably better.
3: <laughs> uncanny
4: <laughs> movies, but I also say we every single one of those movies had like a tie-in person to each movie. It was it was uncanny.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
2: yeah.
1: <laughs> well, I like that you guys know how to. Like you have a gimmick, but you found yeah. ways of working with it to where you're not really too restricted. Uh, and uh, we'll we'll talk a little bit more about how we got to Psycho once we get to real talk, and and we'll also talk a little bit more about your show then. But uh, yeah, I was about to say y'all could do
0: a spinoff with uh, Psycho three and Psycho. There's two and three, right? Both have Anthony Perkins. And in I think them. there's a four as well. My God,
1: and
5: and then
3: the yeah. animated series. That, uh, we include <laughs> remakes as there's part of Christmas the franchise special.
4: too, though. So. Yeah. Psycho Christmas. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. The the Bates family Christmas.
1: (laughs) Actually, okay. Isn't there a TV show? Uh, Is it Bates Motel? Yeah,
4: Bates Motel. Wasn't Vera Farmiga in it? Yeah.
5: And that was actually my uh, first exposure to Vera Farmiga in it. So kind of tainted my view of her a little bit. I think we talked about that in (laughs) source code.
3: Yeah, weirdly. Yeah.
4: She just goes a little mad sometimes. We all go a
1: little mad sometimes. All right. Well, we have a whole bunch of people here in the studio with us. So what I'm going to do is, unlike uh, the usual proceedings where I just I just throw a quote out there and wait to see what Alex says, this time I'm going to specifically target one of you franchise killers, and, uh, and then you can just tell me what oh, you fine. think of what I'm about to read. Uh, again, these relate to the original Psycho, the one from Hitchcock's filmography. So... Let's throw this one at Reese Bill Gibron from Pop Matters, who says Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho set the standard, and postmodern horror has been hobbling to catch up ever since. Reese, what do you think? Did Psycho cripple the horror genre for decades? Are we still have we not recovered from Hitchcock's Psycho?
3: I would say it's been hobbling until the uh, the remake came out, and uh, that firmly. Uh, put us back on track horror wise to build off of uh, that film. Uh, that said, um, and we'll get into it later, but I do take issue with him saying that Psycho is this revolutionary thing that has never been topped. I mean, since then we've had uh, horror innovations such as The Shining, Halloween, uh, Exorcist, all these other just benchmark horrors that I feel that like have progressed. Uh, horror to a higher echelon than uh, Psycho. I'm not going to deny that Psycho has its spot, but when you watch Psycho, it is very much uh, of a time. I never watch Psycho and think like, wow, uh, this is just so far ahead of where we're at right now. Um, Why should I keep watching anything else? Exactly.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, as far as Bill goes, uh, we peaked with Psycho. (laughs) Next, James Rardinelli from Real Views. This one's going to go to uh, AJ. With the exception of Halloween, no latter-day horror thriller has been capable of generating as many goosebumps. So this guy at least singled out Halloween. Uh, Good man. So, AJ, you guys, I'm sure it's only a matter of time before you you guys cover the Halloween franchise, but based on your experience, AJ, how do you feel, like uh, Anthony Perkins or Michael Myers?
5: Yeah, I don't know. Um, The part where he just kind of goes on and on about Huey Lewis in the news just kind of just that,
3: that <laughs> sets the tone for forever. So, what'd you what'd you watch? AJ is, it, is, this, is this a bit Christian Bale? <laughs>
2: <God>. Christian Bale? <laughs> you can't <do> what? This. <laughs> at, at,
1: at least you went with Bale and not with uh, Mila Kunitz.
2: Yeah. Uh,
1: what, what'd you watch? American Psycho. Mm. Uh, uh,
4: Christian Bale. Come
5: on, obviously close I shouldn't own that. You know what?
1: that's a good call though
5: iconic um i guess what's it called the violin string stabbing and stuff Uh, it's just it's in everything now so i don't even know how he's missing that in every horror movie ever but you know it's just done everywhere so i don't know it it's kind of falls in in the in the shadows now even even beyond halloween
1: i like that. would you guys classify american psycho as a as a horror movie
3: Um, it's kind of a, it's, it's a, it's kind of a a mix between, it's kind of like social commentary, comedy, Mm -hmm. horror, all, all rolled into one. I haven't seen it in a very long time, but I know all the memes with the, the the checking the phone and just showing the pictures of the,
4: (laughs) I feel like this is, uh, sacrilege, but I haven't seen it. And, but I know the movie through memes now. I really do.
1: That's all you How many memes do you have from, uh, Psycho versus American Psycho? None. None. That's how you determine the real winner. Audio memes. There you go. Final quote. Anton Bittel from Little White Lies says, Watching Psycho today, we are all, like Marion in the shower, vainly trying to recover lost innocence too late. David, as you were watching Psycho, were you like Marion in the shower? Just feeling completely (laughs) vulnerable?
5: Recovering your lost innocence? And
1: yet not knowing what was going to happen next? (laughs)
4: You know, uh, that guy uh, who wrote this review, I think he might have been telling a little white lie because <laughs> me, myself, there was no loss of innocence in that shower. I would have enjoyed every single stab. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know what the question so
2: was. So enjoying being stabbed means you <laughs> You still are innocent because I mean, you enjoyed it?
4: I, there's got to be something with that, right? I think we need Robert
1: Forster to come in at the end of this podcast to unpack that, that statement. <laughs> yeah,
2: we do. <laughs> I need to see a therapist.
1: Um, well, Alex, do you, you've been around that horror block for a while. Do you do you divide your horror movie experience in a before Psycho and after Psycho?
0: I don't know. I don't remember the first time I saw it. I was probably a little kid. But uh, no, it doesn't have the same dividing line as like – Shit, like anything Rob Zombie's made, because he just consistently reinvents the wheel. <laughs> <laughs> you got to stick with Halloween, then, buddy. Yeah,
1: pre-monsters and post-monsters. That's that's how Gen Z is gonna reference their lives. I think
0: my first yeah. honest to God memory of Psycho is like souvenirs and trinkets at Universal Studios when I was a kid, because I have stuff from that. And like, I have a poster that I got at Universal Studios for Psycho many, years after the fact, but I remember when I was a little kid mm. just seeing like. Just like stationary and keys for the Bates Motel and stuff like that. And it was a pretty big fixture of like AMC and the movie channels on basic cable. When I was a kid, it was on pretty regularly. I do remember the the shower scene when I saw it for the first time. It was like, even as a little kid, you feel like you already know that. It's one of those scenes from a movie that it's like, let's get this over with because everyone's talked about it my entire life. Yeah.
1: I'll tell you the, the real innocence that we lost, and that is that uh yeah when Psycho came out, you didn't have like I don't know Screen Rant and IGN and whatever, any of those websites. Just mm-hmm. spoiling the, the big twist or yeah. whatever clickbait headline. Um that is really so it's not, not just psycho, that, but it's like just
0: people that saw the advanced screenings, tweeting like, "You're not gonna <laughs> believe it." They're like, "I know something you don't know." You know, <laughs> like yeah.
1: Justice for Marion Crane. Yeah, yeah, that's this is that's really the real turning point where we lost innocence is when the internet was invented.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so it was before widespread gatekeeping and uh, annoying fan bases. And I think that's a an apropos lead-in to 1960 Psycho, as it premiered on June 16th of 1960, but didn't have a release until September 8th of 1960. And people were still shocked by what happened. So uh, <laughs> if there's any... I think something you can point to to be like, see, things were a little bit better when we didn't have constant information up to every second. It's the, before the, um, actually
1: Anthony Perkins didn't tweet a photo of himself saying, I can't keep this quiet any longer.
3: <laughs>
4: <laughs> see, I, now I'm starting to, to, um, remember it. I'm making a mental picture of it in my mind. You know, if you make a mental picturization of something, that's right. That's yeah. right.
2: Take the time.
0: Um, Psycho kicks off both the original and the remake with like these spy versus spy type credits that are just crashing into <laughs> one another. Um If I remember correctly, the they're both in black and white and they both. I mean, there's no we'll talk about the remake at the end comparing, you know, what it did mm-hmm. better. Um Because these are basically shot for shot, the exact same. So sticking with the black and white, the OG, we get a long panning shot uh, to our main character, Marion Crane, who's shacked up with Sam Loomis. No, 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 not Donald Pleasance. Uh, That's obviously the influence and inspiration for the character's name. But um, John Gavin. And, you know, it's one of these things of aging Limits the effect, because I think the idea at the time was, look at this woman in this seedy motel having this tawdry affair. You know, this is, we're still in like a a World War II aftershock and whatnot. So this is uh, just breaking all the rules here as uh, Marion Crane on her lunch break is getting a little afternoon delight (laughs) with this Sam Loomis (laughs) character. And they're basically just plotting out how they're going to escape and rule the roost. I mean, he seems like a fucking loser, though. He's got a he got taken for a ride with alimony payments and whatnot. You know, I could see at the time where this is kind of taboo or kind of shocking, but as it comes to pass in this the, the uh, remake, it's just incredibly innocuous. And Julio, did you get the sense that they were Hitchcock was trying to shock audiences right off the bat?
1: Yeah, it's uh, it, it was a little weird, especially having just done uh, an episode about dangerous liaisons for our Patreon channel. That movie is a movie that's a period piece, but it's also shockingly sexual and very forward and all that. And I know that was like, you know, a few years after Hitchcock was playing with with the Bates Motel. But still, this felt so quaint, eh, even though I could tell that it was trying to paint this picture of... uh, uh, you know, decadence. Look at this woman, and they're not married, but they clearly just had sex and they have like little pecks in between words when they're talking. <laughs> it's just, uh, I could feel it trying and I could feel it not working for me. And I can't, like I said, I can't put myself back at the. Uh, The mindset of somebody back then that would have been just horrified by this. To me, they look like a normal couple. And you're right, he looks, he comes across as a dick on top of everything. Uh, What's the deal, Irina? I said I was going to call on you. Let's say, (laughs) let's put David out of the picture right now.
2: Okay. David, you don't exist. All right. right. You don't exist. That's easy to do. Thanks. Sam Loomis,
1: is he he a worthy contestant for your heart? He's
2: (laughs) he's a bit of a meathead. There's, There's really not much going on behind those eyes. You're uh, saying I feel, I'm not a
4: meathead?
2: <laughs> 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 I, <that>.
4: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I won.
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, he's like, I could tell that it's almost like they were trying to go for someone who's very attractive, but I didn't really understand why she's so in love with the guy, so much so that she wants to marry him. And steal $40,000 for yeah, he's he's not forty thousand dollars. He's not worth it. He's empty, basically.
4: Hold on, I just want to go back to the the whole.
2: No, first David, time. you don't exist.
4: Uh, no, I'm just I'm talking about <laughs> marrying. We're bringing Bell you Lewis. back into existence, David. Come on, <laughs> <we'll> express your <laughs> yeah. opinions. Well, I mean, the fact that this is one of the the first. You know, real movies people could go to see that wasn't a raunchy movie, not quote-unquote a raunchy movie, but, you know, you first walk in, first scene, you see Marion in her brawl, which all the men you just know at the time were just like, this is terrible, and then, like, but when <laughs> but they But I also kind of
2: like but it. But I kind of <laughs> like it.
4: Yeah, they were going for the gimmick, and they it paid off. All these guys said they didn't like it, but for some reason, they just kept coming back to the theater mm-hmm. in, in droves. I will say, uh, just to uh, off of that, like... One of
3: my issues with this movie so far, and it carries on throughout all the way to the shower scene, where it is trying to titillate because this is the 1960s, right? So it's having all these extended scenes that are a little more risque than they're used to at this time. Uh, but you fast forward to to today, and you're—it's almost just—it's cute. It's like, oh, that y'all think that's sexy? Okay, okay. like, uh, <laughs> and it just doesn't. Land in exactly the same way you and know? also
4: her hair sucks <laughs> gosh dude
3: <laughs> yeah that like I'm, I'm okay with like
1: jumping over to the remake from time to time to to kind of like underline a point and i think this is the perfect moment because this this scene looks even worse when you have a remake where we get uh, Viggo Mortensen's ass. <gasps> yeah, that's, that's really what what you needed to really sell the message of this the sequence, and you know you just don't get it here because it's there's a constraint of the time. Uh, Alex, this is the first instance of Viggo Mortensen's ass on the show. Uh, am I correct?
0: Yeah, he doesn't show it in Green Book. That's
5: for sure. For more on that, uh, <laughs> check out our Eastern Promises episode. Yes,
4: I stole to it right from my lips, AJ
3: <laughs> Definitely see it there, and more than that. <laughs>
2: Is that butt worth forty thousand dollars? <laughs> oh, that butt is worth more
0: than forty thousand dollars in today's money. Well in Vigo Mortensen's case it was four hundred grand, not forty. Yeah, so. they, had to,
2: they had to bump it up. That so,
0: was pre Lord of the Rings. Yeah, that was like his biggest claim to fame at that point was the second Texas or third Texas chainsaw massacre. But <laughs> so Marion points out, you know. The hotels charged by the hour, which at that point, all the businessmen uh, that were like fucking Leo and Revolutionary Road are kind of squirming in their seats next to their wife like, shut up, bitch. You're going to spoil <laughs> it for the rest of us. Uh, so Marion goes back to work. Uh, her boss comes in with the uh, archetype, the prototype for the uh, rich Texan and the Simpsons in years <laughs> to come, uh, mm-hmm. who is making a purchase of a plot of land, pu- pulls out 40 grand in cash. And the one line of dialogue that I relate to. So much to, this completely resounds to my soul, to my core here. The Texan, or the rich oil tycoon, whatever he is, asks Marion, are you unhappy? And she says, not inordinately. I'm like, girl, (laughs) got you there. I feel that. I thought you were going to say, I need a drink a Rooney or whatever that guy said. (laughs) That did catch me by surprise in the original (laughs) one. I didn't realize they were already adding, like, a Rooney and (laughs) ski to the end of words at that point in time. Ah,
4: drink-ski.
1: A-brew-ski. Maybe this movie started it.
0: Uh, it could be, and the remake, of course, the counterpart to uh, the Marion Crane character is Rita Wilson, which we'll talk about this in the the second half about who really was the biggest star at the time in the the remake. I'm interested to get y'all's <laughs> takes, but in uh, this case, she sees that big stack of cash, she's getting the vapors and thinking about what it can do. She's hearing the voices in her head of you know uh, Loomis and what uh, what this money could buy them. So she is asked to take it to deposit in the bank uh, she says she will do so she's not she's feeling ill she's taken a cold or whatever the fuck she says so she's gonna go home and really she just pockets this money takes it with her and <laughs> has, this, has this grandiose idea that she's gonna just escape with this 40 grand and goes to do so and in uh, like almost like a matrix slash Truman show shot she pulled up to a red light and the boss walks by and he waves at her and then turns back like, wait a minute, there's a glitch, something that's not supposed to happen here. <laughs> so and you know the, uh, this a woman' throat... driving <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to throw it out to the group here about uh, she's really bad at this. She like she sees her boss and she just like is sweating profusely and trying <laughs> to like put on a fake smile and it's obvious immediately that she's not cut out for this life of crime or life on the lamb. I can tell you a movie that does it way better
4: already, right off the bat. Pulp Fiction. Yes. Bruce yeah. Willis,
0: when he's in his car
4: and he sees, uh, what's his name? Marcellus. Uh, Big Marcellus Wallace. Wallace. Yes. And he just stops and he looks at the camera like, motherfucker. <laughs> but, yeah, dude. This one, anytime Marion's in the car, though, I'm just like, oh, gosh. Also, can I criticize, like, back up slightly a little bit? Just the setup of this movie, I feel like the, the
3: establishing of what she's doing is it goes too fast. Mm, like mm-hmm. she's on the road and I'm like, "Wait, what what's happening? She's got this money." Like I get it, but it's also like I don't know her enough. I don't well, we don't really even see her
1: make the decision to take the money. We see yeah. her after she's already taken the money, which was really weird. Uh, yeah. Because she was supposed to go to the bank, then go home. And then yeah. we cut to her being at home. And she already took the money. She already has the money there. And she's acting like she's conflicted. But it would have been a lot more interesting to see her have that conflict before. Right. Like, exactly. You know, she drives up to the bank. She looks at the bank. She looks at the bag. She looks at the bank. She looks at the bag. Yeah. And then her boss walks in front of the car. She steps on the gas, runs over her boss, and takes off into the restaurant. Yeah. yeah like,
3: like, it took me all the way to the point where she's she's on the road and she's starting to hear like hear her the voices in her head like oh how's this playing out for me to actually get invested mm-hmm. in what was happening.
2: Yeah, so we were I was watching it with my sister-in-law and she even had the same question later on she's like why why is she like running why is she nervous what exactly happened it's you can obvious you can blink or just look away for a second and not know that she had taken that money there wasn't really a shot to really establish that fully you just kind of infer it
4: subtlety or stupidity what are we going to go with on this one no goes stupidity. It's stupidity. Oh, it's, it's Hitchcock's stupidity. Everyone God. knows Hitchcock He's, is one of the controversial directors. He's
2: constantly dropping the ball.
1: <laughs> well, he is famously known for just having a, a less than stellar attitude and opinion towards women. So it doesn't surprise yeah. me that he would just have Marion Crane be really dumb about pulling this <laughs> the scheme. It's just like, oh well, that's how women act. That's how and, women
2: are. <laughs> sounds like yeah, Kubrick.
1: I mean, she's just terrible every step of the way. until she's just so bad that she can't even make it to the end of the movie so it yeah it doesn't surprise me but it's still especially now uh you know all all these decades later when we've we've kind of achieved a level of uh balance and representation everything where you see way more capable heroines still get themselves in trouble but at least it looks like they're trying whereas like here marion just doesn't she doesn't for all the voiceover that she has in, in her head throughout the entire movie it doesn't really feel like she's thinking things through uh, and no. that's that's really disappointing uh,
2: women you know. don't have an internal voice it's just the voices of the men around them
4: <laughs> yes Oof, that that's dark that's you, know? cut deep. <laughs> you check with the bank no they never laid eyes on her no you still trust him Hot creeper. She sat there while I dumped it out, hardly even looked at it, planning
3: and and even flirting with me.
5: Yeah, I mean, for as much as uh Hitchcock pulled, you know, straight from the book. So this was based on a book Um, and it, it's pretty faithful to the book and his credit. But there's so much more establishment to motive and Sam, you know, struggling to keep this shop and they're engaged for like two years and he's still in debt and. You know, there's a lot more motive. Like, we could have definitely used that to get us along mm-hmm. instead of, oh no, I'm looking at this envelope ten
1: times. Uh, <laughs> yeah,
5: yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. But General D, as a, as a plot aside, just as a as an actress trying to infuse life into Marion Crane, what is she going for here? Because <laughs> the the camera is fixated on her face for long periods of time, and even again with the with the voiceover and all that stuff. I mean, it doesn't really. I don't get much emotion out of it. So my my
3: argument is going to be a bit complicated because I am, I am more invested in this the, the Janet Lay performance here, uh, but I think the fact that this movie wants you to be more invested in her character is a detriment to what happens later in the story versus uh, Anne Heche's, uh take on this character. So that'll probably interesting I'll probably have to get more into that a little later.
1: Oh, I think um, I think I get what you mean, uh, Reese. You're one of those uh, white knight guys that would rather come to the defense of a, a woman that seems out of their depth instead of somebody as resourceful as Anne Hae in the remake. Sure, let,
3: let's put it that way.
1: <laughs>
4: <laughs> Honestly, the dialogue, especially in comparison to was it Janet Lee, yeah, versus Anne Hae, it. It feels weird when Anne Haeja is saying it, but I realized after rewatching it that all of it has to do with the time it was made in, like the delivery and the acting. I would say is even better in the new one, not to give my hand away, but it's just that I th- when you're watching a 1960s that's bar- that's basically the 1950s like, in black and Almost. white. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's just something about the dialogue. Well, I like, think it was released just- in '59 in some places. Sure, and and it just feels like you your brain just goes. Different times. That, that, that's how they talked back then, and it just feels <laughs> normal. Whereas, <laughs> ne- then you hear the exact same thing. You could get the best actors ever, and if they repeat it the exact same way, the same kind of lines, it doesn't work nowadays. Mm-hmm. And so, is it the dialogue working then, or do people just accept it? That's, I don't know. It's one of those things that I'm, I've been trying to think about. Yeah,
2: I always think that with movies, I kind of see early ones as going through this transition from stage performance to filmed performance Mm. where like once you have those close-ups they started adjusting to the fact that no the camera will pick up the details people can hear me i don't have to overly enunciate you know or speak for the people in the back yep it starts to tone down and become more subtle so i feel like during this time period there's almost an awkwardness about interactions that are kind of bordering on the real and then also seem a little like staged yeah yeah
1: i like the idea that hitchcock was was experimenting to see just how far he could get away with Uh, yeah just holding the camera there and then obviously psycho shows you what the limit is i was like okay well, at some point you have to give the actor something to do you can't just have her (laughs) driving with the camera there without nothing
0: else going on uh Marion as I said I used the expression on the lamb earlier she gets pulled over by a cop you get this really fucking in your face scene where this cop's in, not interrogating her but she just pulled over to sleep on the side of the highway and it's almost like Futurama style he's just like sir your wife's hysterical that type of thing <laughs> and so he's you know asking her what she's doing and where she's going and ends up following her as she goes to as again she's bad at this she just pulls into a dealership she's like just give me a new car
2: Yeah,
0: and uh <laughs> we all know that would work the dealer i you know i apologize i didn't write this guy's name down but the used car salesman the actor in the original is one of those you know we didn't really have oh that guy actors or you know um solid hands in the acting world back then so this guy you know every guy you see that had a role like this in movies in the 50s and 60s really had to just go for it and i applaud this guy you know he pulls up he's like he uses all the car dealer or car salesman expressions and i won't hear it trying to bargain me for price you know stuff like that and so it's a it's a fun scene in that aspect but again it's just as a viewer within you know two brain cells it's just like dude this cop's watching you you're not making a good case <laughs> and then when she actually gets the yeah. car swapped out she tries to like peel out leaving her fucking belongings behind um she does have the cash also, she's in such a rush and she decides that she this is the time to all right i'm gonna use the restroom
4: uh <laughs> well it was for the money that, that's what it was for that was okay
2: yeah, she wanted to hide how much cash she had in there. Uh, we're going to
4: critique it, We got to give it you know, yeah, just a reason. I'm going to say the weird thing to me was the fact that the cop kind of just shows up and just meanders around and does nothing.
1: <laughs> yeah. I
5: was like, what are exactly. you doing? He's just looming. Have you not driven through a small Texas town?
1: <laughs> well, no, but the problem is that the, they make it look like the cop is onto her. And yeah. then he just lets her go. He's, he's literally parked across from the dealership watching her. And then nothing comes of it.
4: He's just trying to think of what to do. He's like, "How can I bust her illegally but make it look legal?" Hmm. Can't. I got nothing.
5: Probable cause. Uh, that actor was John Anderson, the used car salesman.
0: Thank you, Mr. Anderson. And you know, not not trying to reinforce any stereotypes or anything, but this woman just takes a car off the lot without test driving it. Come on, come on, sweetie. You gotta, you gotta <laughs> buckle up and. Try these things out here.
3: (laughs) I was gonna say, like, and and maybe this is inevitably a a criticism of both films, but I think this the score. And I know a lot of people love the iconic like knife score when she's actually getting stabbed in the shower. But this score for this movie is incessant. Mm -hmm. I don't see why this is seen as is one of the most iconic scores, other than just that pivotal moment in the shower where you get the. The bling bling re- bling re- bling. Re- re- like other than that, it is basically mm-hmm. the same two minute track of music mm-hmm. over and over and over mm-hmm. and over again. And I honestly don't think it meshes well with a lot of the, like the first third of this movie because it's it's just like all right, well they're bringing this 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 music out again. I don't know if y'all felt the same way. It just mm, for me, it I was... definitely I was done with
4: this music.
2: <laughs> it's supposed to turn you into a psycho. Yeah.
3: It's
1: uh, that thing you do affect. It's like maybe it was okay the first time, but then when you've heard it five times uh, in the first half of the movie, you're you're ready to be done. Like move on to something yeah. else.
5: That's Terminator Genesis is done, 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 done. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god. Don't I can just imagine
2: all the people back then walking out of the theater, getting that theme stuck in their head and singing it as they're walking down the street or going to work. Like <laughs> 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 as they're driving. <laughs>
3: Yeah, it's so opposite to something like Halloween, where I'm like, oh, I am in the mood to hear that Halloween score. Like, no one's jumping in their
4: car, like, I'll just jam that psycho score. (laughs) I will say, the the benefit of it is the fact that we get it in other movies in small portions now, where we're like, ah, I get what that's referencing, but I don't have to listen to it for two hours. Yeah, exactly. They didn't want to
5: pay for a full score, so they just got some sound effects with a single instrument. That's what happened.
1: Yep. And they, they just loop them. Uh, I like that idea. <laughs> that the, the biggest legacy of uh, Psycho is that they gave us a shortcut when it comes to music. Yeah.
3: Sorry, Bernard Herman. I like your uh, main Psycho mic drop moment, but everything else, uh, take it or leave it.
0: So she gets her car. She drives away. She's starting to play out all these fictional scenarios in her head of like... <laughs> shit that um, you know people like me with crazy OCD and shit this is I was like this isn't anything special this happens to me all the time what are you talking about you're in the mm-hmm. shower and you're thinking about conversations you're going to have somewhere down the road but she's yeah. obviously freaking out because she's you get the idea that Marion Crane's never stolen a fucking candy bar let alone 40 grand yep. which was big books back in those days so she's starting to think this through you know she's driven by passion and love but she's it's, kind of, it's, the, it's the end of The Graduate. She's starting to sober up here. Mm-hmm. And uh, it starts raining as she's driving, and she has to get off the road. So she pulls into the Bates Motel, and we're uh, greeted by uh, Norman Bates, who runs yep. the hotel mm-hmm. and lives in the back. We get to see the big old uh, house that he stays in, which got some fun stories about that come real talk. But he comes down, greets her, checks her in, explains, you know, uh, it, you've got vacancy. You can have the room right next to the office, so I can help you out. All this, you know, the the classic rigmarole that we're used to now uh, in a movie like this, but at the time was fairly groundbreaking. And that's kind of where the confusion starts here. And for me, as watching in through twenty twenty two lenses, it's like this dude's clearly like creepy. Like there's yes. there's, there's a <laughs> they screw had no loose. No red flags back then. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Like when we get to the When we get to the remake, Vince Vaughn at least has the gumption to be overtly creepy, where this guy's (laughs) just kind of like, you know, a bit too happy to be in the situation that he's in. So uh, I guess at the time, audiences were just hoodwinked by this but now you know even without the the spoiler of like the shower scene and stuff just what we know about men and white men in general watching this it was like girl get in your car and drive down the road go (laughs) sleep at the diner or some shit but it's uh it's amazing that this was perceived as subtle at any point in time
1: that is, this is the biggest jump that the movie is asking the audience to take and I, I just couldn't do it and I can't imagine the people did it back then I mean I, I guess you were just more willing to let movies just grab you by the hand and take mm. you wherever but the, I mean I have to put Irina on the spot again because again she's you know the the one female here on the, on the show and the, the
2: woman here well wouldn't you run away <laughs> you, yeah, you stop at this motel I would, I would... Probably look at this and think, uh, "This is the only guy here. I don't think any of these rooms are booked. I'm getting out. I'm leaving. He I'm not going to stay there in that room alone." I, I will <laughs>
4: also say it doesn't matter, guy or girl. If I was there and this guy's like, "I'll put you in the room right next to the office," and hey, do you want to get <laughs> sandwiches? I'd be yeah, like, "Guess I, what?
2: It's, uh, I'm leaving." <laughs> it's incredibly suspect. What I, I'm also like, she
3: up until this point has been very paranoid about the situation she's in. So to suddenly be like, yeah, you know, this guy's fine. Mm -hmm. Like, no, shouldn't she have that inner dialogue throughout all this, too, about, no, I need to go to my room, just close the doors, lock everything, hole in for the night, not make any friends, not make any contacts that could, you know, just make yeah. a paper trail for well, what i'm doing well back like am not, back I'm not
2: f- stuck with this guy who reminds me of gilligan if his <laughs> mom abused him and he hit his head on the floor a few too many times
4: i uh, look back then though people were so polite that they would be willing to die by murder just to like not inconvenience somebody they did not want to be impolite <laughs> i don't know oh, sure. man.
5: she saw that stuffed cock and, and owl on the wall and yeah. Such
2: a <laughs> He's like, this is fine.
1: Like, it's game time.
2: <laughs> but see, I
1: I still think that gender wise it it makes less sense for a woman because even now, like generally you would say this is not being sexist or anything, but generally like women are more vulnerable because it's just that's just how mm-hmm. society yeah. works. You know, it just it sucks, but that's how it is. And so but also on top of that, like men, because of how society works, are just more confident in a way in, in this type of situation I, I i'm i mean we see it later in the movie with arbogast you, you know when mm-hmm. i see a dude lowering his defenses like over uh underestimating anthony perkins as a threat i buy it because i'm like yeah dudes are dumb you know like they, they think that they, they have a better handle <laughs> they on things size them they, up
4: and they're like i'm bigger than this guy exactly yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, but marion crane Even after every single fuck-up that she's made, like, from the beginning of the movie till now, I still couldn't believe that she would be just so trusting and so unaware of how dangerous the situation is. Like, it's the middle Mm. of the night. It's a creepy house. And Just it's
3: so opposite to how she behaved around literally every other character leading up to this. Mm-hmm. Like the car salesman, the police officer. I get the police officer. I'll give some leeway there because it's a huge authority figure and I yeah. get the the concern around that. But the, the car salesman, she's very like, I got to get out of here. I got to move on. Like, I've, I, I've got a whole bunch of money. And once you get to the Bates Motel, you almost lose track of that original plot where it's like oh no she has all this money she has to be uh careful and she like lets her guard down for what re- for this creepy guy the, mm-hmm. the one out of all the characters that we've met so far is the most sketchy yeah like i i don't get it
2: i i have to say that even even if i somehow got to that point where i'm eating in the parlor i would immediately exit after seeing all the taxidermied birds and then upon my first bite him saying you kind of eat like a bird it's like if that wasn't assigned <laughs> spit, out your
3: food, like, it, like, spit it out spit out your you
2: food you get out of there there are
4: all these stuffed birds here you eat like a you
3: bird you eat
2: like a bird uh, well actually when it comes to
4: uh, stuffing animals it's it's really quite easy you just <laughs> stuff it and then string What's it up With sawdust <laughs> and you're just like uh <laughs>
1: uh aj you you betrayed yourself as somebody who's watched bates motel the tv show um is freddie highmore believable as a, a precursor like a, as a young man that would grow up to be anthony perkins
5: actually yes uh that is something that um i think he he really fit that role uh more more so perkins than than vince vaughn definitely um the problem only is young, I think
1: only young Vince Vaughn can play young <laughs>
5: yeah. Vince Vaughn. Yeah. I, it's, it's one of those phenomena that, you know, is that the actor or are we seeing them act? Um, you know, he, I think I haven't seen it, but the good doctor or whatever. It's like, okay, now it just seems like Norman Bates is a, in the ER room or
0: something. <laughs> um. So he goes, he invites her to the house initially and he goes up there and she just like completely eavesdrops on this dude having an argument with his mom. She just kind of <laughs> opens the windows like, oh, I shouldn't be listening to this. And then, you know, Grinch style creeps her ear a bit even closer to the ruckus mm-hmm. that's going on. Hot uh, gossip. Yeah. So <laughs> they come down. He comes down, brings some sandwiches and milk they eat in the parlor. Uh, he says goodnight to her. Of course, he drops the iconic line. We all go a little mad sometimes. That was re... Configured and delivered with more oomph, believability, and panache by Skeet Ulrich in Scream come 1996. Uh, Mm -hmm. He then, through a peephole in the parlor, watches Janet Lee undress, which again had to be borderline pornography at the time. (laughs) Yeah, I detected a a little side boob. So it's pretty scandalous. (laughs) Voyeurism was big
3: back in the day.
1: And yet, I mean, it gets taken. To a more effective place in the in the remake that's all i'll say mm, mm-hmm.
0: jesus uh it, it something happens in that movie they do, uh, they do happen
4: <laughs> there's no sense dwelling on our losses we just keep on lighting the lights and following the formalities
0: uh so this now you know it's been a long day it's time to run a hot shower and this is what this movie's known for. She gets in the shower and then she's eventually, we see a shadowy figure approach the shower, peel back the curtain. The scream is let out. The
4: re-re-re, which is
0: yeah. a parody to death to this day. And she is stabbed repeatedly over and over again in black and white. I think it was chocolate syrup or something they used to circle down the drain to give the appearance of blood. But it of was. Course, it was chocolate syrup. Thank you. and But of course, Gus Van Zandt had the the balls, the walnuts in his trousers to shoot this in color as it was meant to be seen and to just show Anne Hayes spread eagle on camera, man. Uh, so yep. Jan- <laughs> Marion Crane is stabbed. She <laughs> is dead and the water continues to run as the mysterious killer vanishes in the background. Out of nowhere appears uh, a wild Anthony Perkins and he sees the scene and immediately, you know, at this point, we obviously don't know the twist ending, but if this is your first time seeing it, the way he looks at it is like, oh, mom did it again. And he, you know, he knows how to clean up here. <laughs> oh, and no. It's not like, you know, fucking. Uh, he doesn't have the bleach ready on the moment, but he packs up the body and then cleans the room down and gets her and all her belongings and drives them out into the swamp and lets the car just sink away. And little does he know he just kissed 40 grand goodbye could have bought him all kinds of dress <laughs> yeah. but not to be. So, yeah, this is one of the most iconic murder scenes in the history of cinema, not just American cinema but anywhere. So, it's uh it's interesting to see in its original iteration and then also how it was uh not only redone and expanded upon in the remake that came out but basically every movie that's involved any type of murder in a bathroom since It's uh it really makes it seem small by comparison to what we've seen over the decades since. I forgot how much it is literally the uh,
3: the just the rigid arm stretched out, dagger in hand, stab downward motion. Yeah. And I was like, wow, that has not aged well. No, <laughs> like well, the well. Uh, like that's how you kill someone in the shower.
5: <laughs> Wasn't Hitchcock deliberately trying to be kind of subversive on not showing a direct? penetration to like kind of skirt the uh
4: not the ratings but it, it passing approval yeah. we, we learned that from uh one of our other movies though right like you can't show something entering and exiting from one side or like yeah but I, i'm just saying like when there there is
3: there's this thing with certain scenes that are hyped up as iconic scenes mm-hmm. in movies and this is one of them the stabbing scene in psycho And uh, just to be fully transparent, this is a movie I didn't watch until very recently. Not for this episode, but last year was the first time I had seen Psycho. You and I
4: watched it together,
3: right? Yes. Mm -hmm. And watching it the first time, I was like, this is what everyone's talking about? Like this scene where one guy does the downward motion dagger thing and, and in a totally disconnected scene, the woman is reacting, just screaming, and you don't see anything really and then it cuts up again to the oh downward dagger thing with barely any like it it, the the two scenes never feel like they're exactly meshed in the same area for me in this rules of the time man as aj was saying rules of the time i know but it it, it, i understand but it's still i can't help but be slightly put off by the disconnect in this iconic scene that's supposed to have lived on through time it is underwhelming especially you know we talk about kubrick and all the
5: workarounds for filming and shooting and stuff and they hitchcock had them make this special made you know shower with removable walls so we could get all these different angles and i don't know it didn't really translate to the scene or maybe it just doesn't age well maybe it was awesome back
4: in the day but they made a six foot shower head, (laughs) guys six foot
1: but that's the thing like it it I I know it looked awesome back in the day because people had never seen anything like that. But that I think that that's the risk with filmmaking and yeah. with art, I guess, uh, or yeah. pop art, that some things just don't age well. And so it looked great back then. Uh, it doesn't look great now. And so you kind yeah. of wish that he hadn't gone this way. And instead, all he needs to see is you see Marion entering the shower. She's showering. You see the figure coming out because that looks great, like the creepy figure behind her. And then you just cut and you just hear the murder, you know, from outside the bathroom. And that's never going to age poorly. <laughs> that's just going to yeah, remain effective it's forever. Yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, granted, we would have been robbed from Gus Sand Sant <laughs> redoing this, this scene in this particular way <laughs> yeah, and adding true. its own flourishes. But still, it's just, uh, I appreciate that Hitchcock was swinging for the fences. And uh, it clearly, it worked. But really, the big shock... Is that he kills Marion Not that we see how Marion gets killed You know what I mean? Like she was yeah. a protagonist And he killed her off So he could have done it uh, in a way that was uh, Maybe less showy But yeah. it still mm-hmm. worked And people would still be talking about the fact that Psycho is that movie where They kill the the main The leading actress halfway through Like That would right. still be a legacy But instead you know now there's this shower scene That like reset doesn't live up to the hype When you've yeah, it's
5: overshadowed by the, the, you know, the three notes uh, more so than the shot, the image of mm-hmm. it. And, you know, sometimes implication of something, an act, is more tension creating than just showing it outright. So clearly Alfred here doesn't know tension if it, you know, hitched him on the nose. <laughs> um,
3: uh, this is where my issues with the movie really actually come to the surface. And this was—I was alluding to my argument earlier about Janet Leigh being, like, I think she is a she has a very strong performance in this, despite what y'all, what some of y'all say. Which I think the twist of having her die at this moment really hinders the momentum of this movie because now I have to reassess and get invested in other characters, uh, where I was fully invested in what was going on with uh, uh, Janet Lay's character here and. Have have y'all seen that movie, The Place Beyond the Pines?
2: No. Yes. I was
3: working (laughs) at the movie theaters with Julio when that came out. Yeah, great. (laughs) I I actually think it's a great movie, but uh, that movie was marketed as, this is a uh, Ryan Gosling vehicle. He's the star. And spoilers for Place Beyond the Pines, for those that haven't seen it, but it's an old movie, so come on. Let's get with the program here. But he dies like a third or to a half of the way through the movie, and it's very unexpected. he goes into the
1: shower and then that's
4: (laughs) it
3: yeah (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, exactly but it's the same thing where it's like in the moment I'm like wow that's a really cool twist and then you're like oh now I have to get to know these other characters and it's just this (laughs) whole reset where you have invested in this movie up until this time and she's been framed as the lead character and you're like oh I want to see how this all plays out plus the heist the plot of stealing the money now that's gone like okay yeah So when I watch Place Beyond the Pines, I'm like, Ryan Gosling, he's our lead. And then we're like, oh, now I have to spend time with these other boring characters. And but see, see what Place Beyond the Pines does well that Psycho doesn't
1: is that Bradley Cooper replaces Ryan Gosling there. So Exactly. You, you, ha- yeah. you have to have somebody that's equally as interesting, as charismatic as the person that you just killed off. And that doesn't happen in Psycho. In Psycho... It, it, they do it twice then, because you know it looks like for a while we're gonna be with Arbogast. He's gonna be like our guy, but then he is also replaced by uh, by Loomis and and the sister. So, uh, yeah, I, I agree. Like the movie, in a way, I guess we were better off investing in Norman. But I don't know that anybody could do that.
3: Yeah. So yeah, that, that it, it just kind of threw me for a loop, and uh, it just the having to recalibrate is a bit frustrating in this movie.
2: They tell you what its ingredients are. And how it's guaranteed to exterminate every insect in the world. But they do not tell you
5: whether or not it's painless. And I say, insect or man, death should always be
2: painless.
0: So it's a few weeks later, and Loomis, we see, is writing a letter to uh, Marion when Marion's sister, Lila, shows up, played by Vera Miles. And she knows what's going on. She knows that they're someone out looking for her because of the situation. She just wants to know where her sister is. And a uh, private investigator Arbogast has been hired uh, for the case, Martin Balsam. And the idea is they're trying to keep it quiet and just get the money back. So she doesn't have to do any hard times for the, the 40 grand that she stole. Uh, so he just basically is retracing her steps. And of course he ends up back at the uh, Bates motel, just following, you know, where she presumably would have been on her way out of town and, Norman just has a god awful poker face in this scene of trying to just oh no she wasn't here and he's immediately <laughs> caught up in lies and it's not even doing a good job of like him convincing and push him off the trail which i guess you know in 1960 it would have been a lot easier to get away with this type of shit but this eventually leads to Arbogast just kind of snooping a bit too far he asked to interview the mother and his uh, his request is declined but he eventually fucking breaking and entering he gets into the house i think the door might be cracked or something but uh he meets the same fate that marion did as we see this mysterious figure come out difference is he gets stabbed in the fucking face and fall down the staircase yeah it's pretty metal actually
1: except for the fact that it's the worst shot in the
0: movie (laughs) and it's completely recaptured in the remake (laughs) yeah the they had the there's like a forced perspective style shot but it was just you know just shy of Hitchcock standing behind the dude with a twirling umbrella. Like, ooh, <laughs> look at this effect. Uh, so now we have two victims, and having not heard back from Arbogast yet, uh, Sam goes, just kind of, what does he do? He drives out there and just kind of scopes it out and then comes back like like an intel report. Yep, yep. And they make it seem like
3: this is just the easiest commute ever, <laughs> when in the beginning of this movie it, it seemed like she went way out there. Yeah, out in the and middle of the And Then they nowhere. make it seem like, oh yeah, just a fifteen minute drive out to the Bates Motel. Yeah. Well um, also,
2: like, doesn't he doesn't Norman mention that this is like away from the highway or something? Like people don't come through here anymore. Yeah, It, it, so w- it wasn't like, clear.
3: Yeah. Yeah.
2: I, I think it's it's off the beaten path.
5: Yeah, it's like uh Pixar's cars, you know, they had Radiator Springs—that was all the jive in the day. But then they yeah. built the bypass around it, so no one stops there anymore. <laughs> I, n- there
3: I know my next double feature. Thank you, AJ. <laughs>
2: <Chow>. Double feature: <laughs> <laughs>
3: Psycho and Cars. <laughs> uh, so, David, I, I'm going to put the
1: spotlight on you now. Let's say that they tell you that uh, Irina stole forty thousand dollars, and she hasn't been seen in like you know three weeks, and uh, a detective is looking for her, and she may be in this motel, but we don't know for sure, whatever. Would you be as chill as Sam Loomis is this entire movie? Because I was, uh, I already had trouble buying them as a couple, and here it just looked even less likely that he cared at all about Janet. Uh, but the problem is that I have to believe that he cares about Janet in order to actually go to the Bates Motel and put on his performance there later. But he just doesn't seem like he cares. He he, he seems almost as amusing. as like, oh, we're having an adventure with a detective, and, you know, let's just let him do their work. Uh, please tell me that you would react differently <laughs> if your significant
4: other went missing. Look... If somebody, if a policeman or somebody came up to my door, and was like, "Hey, we can't find Irene. She's out on the run. She stole four hundred million dollars, or whatever, it, whatever it be it in today's is money. Not quite. That I'm much. just saying, whatever amount of money it is, if they're if it's a lot of money, and they say she's out on the run, do I know anything? She stole fifty bucks. Never heard of her. <laughs> no, I'm just be like, <laughs> I, I don't know. what You're talking about. Does she have a hot sister? <laughs> <laughs> look i'm just saying like i'm gonna play dumb like i i will be very dumb i don't know he's not doing that here but i'm just saying if it were me like my instinct is she's doing something for a reason and i'm her you know partner in crime in this we're in it to death baby like i you know what guess what she's gonna she better come pick me up like in two days at 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 the secret uh the safe house we have planned just saying but no, in this case, he's just dumb.
1: Yeah, I think he's not playing dumb. He's just dumb. That's it. That's a good exactly. He's it. not
4: playing like, oh, she's going to come find me with that money. It's more like, oh, no. What? I don't know. Women. I don't know. Women. <laughs> hey, I better find someone else now, I guess. Must be hysteria.
0: <laughs> this Julianne Moore looks pretty. <laughs> that's true. That's, that's something we can get behind um before they go out uh, on the hunt together though uh lila and sam go and visit the local sheriff who's just so fucking no nonsense i love this dude like uh (laughs) he's uh inconvenienced that they woke him up from his slumber and (laughs) so john mcintyre plays uh sheriff al chambers in the uh original 1960 and it's played by um philip baker hall in the 98 version but the scene is basically just like yeah there is no woman out there. She's been dead. I buried her. You know, <laughs> Leave me alone. What I want to go back about? to sleep. Yeah. <laughs> and they say, uh, Sam says, well, I saw a woman in the window. And he's like, you're meaning to tell me that Mrs. Bates is still alive? Who the hell did I bury all those years ago? So, <laughs> Best comedy.
2: Kids and their ghost stories. I tell you.
0: <laughs> this leads to Sam and Lila heading back out to the Bates Motel to the literal scene of the crime to figure out. Once and for all, what the fuck's going on? The plan being that Lila will do some sleuthing while uh, Loomis creates a diversion, a distraction, which he's just awful at. His idea of a distraction (laughs) is just accosting and excoriating Norman for all the things he's done wrong in his life, uh, which shockingly quickly escalates and leads to a a physical confrontation between them. Meanwhile, inside, Lila discovers like a, a bed groove that has been, you know, obviously not touched for some time. And uh, Hitchcock didn't go all the way in. She finds a, you know, a pornographic book, but we don't see any of it. Unlike the '98 uh, remake, where Gus Van Sant he showed us titties. He knew what we wanted to see mm-hmm. and, and fapping. fapping. Oh, that's God. why We get to see Norman do that. I forgot about that. Yep. Norman just, dating.
2: Oh, <laughs> uh,
0: there's a struggle between Sam and Norman. Norman, he hits him over the head with like a a vase or an urn or something, whereas it's way more fucking metal than the Gus Van Zandt one. He just decks him in the face with a golf club. Uh, But whatever the case, Norman is able to retreat back up to his home to figure out what the hell's going on. Inside the home, Lila finds Mrs. Bates, or so she thinks she does. Turns her around. It's a fucking decomposing body. This is a Texas Chainsaw Massacre. The end of that, where Sally goes up and thinks she's found a body, and it's It is, but it's a dead decomposing one. And so she starts freaking out. She hits the light above her because it's a Hitchcock movie. So we got to have that swaying light effect in it. Mm -hmm. And then Norman Bates runs in to declare that he's Norma Bates. And he goes to (laughs) kill Lila, but he's stopped by Sam, which leads to his eventual arrest and uh, interrogation evaluation by a local psychiatrist who just has the worst bedside manner I've ever seen. He comes out and just looks at (laughs) Lila and he's like, your sister's dead. Now moving on. Uh, This guy's a whack job.
2: Let me talk to you about my analysis of this dude because I never get to shine as a psychologist. (laughs) Let
1: me explain the movie to you.
0: I, I can't remember his name either i'm blanking on all the names here because they're not really given any it's just like here's these people the psychiatrist similar to the car salesman in this is an actor that's just going for it and uh is just very overt with his enunciation and delivery of lines also uses the word matricide which i had never really been familiar with before yeah so anyway in short they find out that the mom was there but the mom is the the son is the mom is the son. It, so, you know, the audit, people are like riding in the streets in 1960 at this point. They've never <laughs> come across anything like this in their <laughs> lives. But of course, we live in a time where shit like the sixth sense exists. So we're like, all right, what else you got yeah. for me?
2: <laughs> Makes sense.
0: I did get very
3: Shyamalan feels throughout this.
1: There's just such a sense of uh, it, just like a smug self-satisfaction when the because you know, that's just basically Hitchcock and his writers like projecting, you know, through the psychiatrist. Like this is what where we tell you what was really happening. And aren't we clever? Wasn't this mm-hmm. something that you were not expecting? You thought that we'd peaked with the shower scene, but no, we peak with this reveal. And mm-hmm. sadly, they did peak with the shower scene. Cause this is nothing. This this has never done anything for me other than absolutely kill the movie. It's just so uh, it just stops in its tracks. Yeah. The plot stops so that they can explain it to you f- at length. <laughs> like, you're right, Alex. The actor is doing what he can with the lines, but it's ultimately it's just exposition. <laughs> There's The <Yeah>. movie's over.
3: <laughs> Nobody cares. Yeah, and also, much like some Shyamalan movies, what is this movie without its, like, big twists? It's really very substandard. Like, it, the execution is fine, but it doesn't have anything to say beyond, like, hey, we got you that time, and then we got you again towards the end. (laughs)
4: And then, then at the very end, you're like, what am I supposed to think at this point? He's in custody. I don't know. Yeah. uh, All right, guess movie's over. It's more just like,
3: and I get annoyed by films like this sometimes where they're like, oh, we tricked you, and oh, we tricked you again. Uh, wow look how tricked you are look how stupid you look after this movie you didn't expect that and now we're gonna explain how you were tricked
4: <laughs> you uh, got me you got <laughs> um, me again hitchcock man <laughs> i didn't see that coming
3: <laughs> that was you
1: live
4: watching that the was movie. me yeah, yeah. let's see
1: hitchcock like they didn't have twitter back then so he's like all right well i have to give somebody a platform to explain the movie uh, even mansplain it and they get this guy and you're right reese the <laughs> So this movie doesn't do anything. It doesn't have like any substance. It doesn't say anything. And that is probably the biggest uh, um, strength of the remake because – and it's all in the performance, right? Like Perkins mm. is just so creepy here that you never care for him. And so I don't care about his backstory. I don't think that there's anything to be gained from learning his backstory uh, because Vince Vaughn is more charismatic as Norman Bates in the remake I actually care for him. And I know that part of yeah. it is just that I'm more familiar with Vince Vaughn as an actor. So I already have an attachment to him. And I I actually feel like learning what happened makes me a little more sympathetic towards him, which mm-hmm. makes me think about my attitude as a human being towards people that are disturbed or that have grown up with you know the kind of hardships that Norman Bates grew up with and, and so on. So there is actually, even though it's, Within the almost the exact same framework as the original, just changing that actor and giving you know, a, a different performance like that makes it have a little more weight. I mean, not a whole lot because ultimately, Van Sant decided that he wanted to constrain himself to playing uh, exactly within the mm-hmm. the roadmap that the Hitchcock had. But still, like I, I feel like that is probably the biggest difference that when you get to the end of the psycho remake, you might at least feel something towards Norman, and which is why. Mm-hmm. That final smile that Norman has is supposed to, you know, just shock you one last time because just when you're starting to feel a little sympathy, he reminds you with that smile that he he murdered two people, at least that you know of. Uh, mm-hmm. None of that happens in the in the original. The original I, I've already checked out halfway through the the explanation. So, yeah, uh, Alex, unless you have something else to say about the original, I, I think that we can we can uh, deep dive in a little bit of Contreras Corner about the remake.
5: It's not as if she were a maniac or a raving thing. She just goes a little mad sometimes. We all go a little mad sometimes. <laughs> Haven't you?
0: Yeah. I mean, it's in color, which is obviously a step up right there. Uh, <laughs> Easily. It, <Yeah>. ha- <laughs> it has Julianne Moore, so there's a step up. It has Flea, so therefore it immediately wins <laughs> between the two. Um
1: Baby Driver and the Psycho Remake, the top two movies in Flea's filmography.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Fucking moron. Uh, Big Lebowski, come on.
1: The number three.
5: (laughs) Uh, Well, we're talking about Vince Vaughn here. I mean, so the book, Norman is uh, kind of more of an overweight kind of chubby. I mean, you can see why he's a loner, isolated and stuff, and Mm -hmm. uh, secluded from society, recluse. Whereas... You know, in the original, he's like you know he's got some charm and charisma. So I don't know that Vince Vaughn. I'd say he's like super grotesque, but a little pudgy compared to to um, Perkins. So I, I think that portrayal, compared to the original novel, um, kind of lends to the maybe a bit more authentic of that
0: character. Mm. Speaking to the end of the movie, though, as something that I think we can all agree upon is the vastly superior uh, closing in that in the remake, we get fucking Robert Forrester fresh off the heels of Jackie Brown just cashing in when he was wanted everywhere, delivering that tremendous exposition <laughs> as a psychiatrist. Um, yeah, it was much know, better than in the first one. Put, you know, for better or worse or whatever your feelings are on it, the remake Aging is a big thing. We've been talking this entire hour about Psycho, the original, how it ages questionably at best. Whereas the '98 Gus Van Sant remake is like, oh my god, this motherfucker got all these stars into one place at one time. <laughs> mm-hmm. It ages tremendously.
1: Yeah, uh, Robert Forster, he was he was not like that uh, actor from the first one where he was like, honey, I made it to Psycho. He was just to th- to him, this was just another day, like post Jackie Brown. He was just hitting home runs. He
0: got that one take. He told them, this is all you get.
1: (laughs) Yeah.
3: (laughs) I have to be on the set of Breaking Bad. What I really like about this remake is that in completely cutting out everything from the first one and pasting it into this modern setting, we get this uncanny valley feeling throughout the entire movie. It is. it it almost has an it follows type feeling where you're like, where and when does this take place? Everyone is Mm -hmm. talking weird. It's just like no one talks like this in the late 90s. So you're immediately put in this sense of unease where I feel like throughout this thing, I'm trying like, what is this world? It feels weird. Like it looks like kind of slightly modern day, but not quite. And everyone's talking like they're from the 60s. I think it's slight idiocy but also genius on Gus van Sands part like I don't know which it's a constant battle between those two uh and that's what makes this this movie fascinating to me because you, they're literally excising the exact movie but implant but putting a coat of modern paint on it and I in in this movie's attempt to be exactly like the original, it actually ends up being one of the most unique remakes and one of the most memorable in a really weird way and and it's just such a fascinating experiment to watch mm-hmm. because it, it it is really like i feel more unsettled watching this movie than yep. i do the original uh because the original it you watch it as it's it's of a time yep that movie is of a time i understand like why it was revolutionary at this time but it, this movie is simultaneously the most, the, the easiest, most obvious decision to make for a remake, and also the most bold, because what other remake has shot for shot remade the original? It's like, and in that way, like when you see the the slight little differences, the slight turns in this movie, and, and just the way it's it's copy and pasted to the modern times, it's, it's really like, it, it almost has a... Like, as I said, it follows or like a they live type situation. Like, oh, there's one normal person and everyone else around this person is like, there's something off.
4: I I almost
3: want to see like
4: every 20 to 40 years, like a remake again, just to see like how that keeps building up. It's like, what is going on? And and Gus
3: Van Sant also makes these smart decisions where he, he knows that we know that Norman, there's something up with Norman Bates, so he completely leans into Vince Vaughn being a, a full-on creepo, and that, in a way, for this movie, makes it even scarier because he is—he's tall, he's imposing, they muscular. Like, it, it's it, in a way, it's like I am more scared of this guy, and the 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 more I don't know. The, the sexuality of it is amped up the violence of it is amped up I think the killing scene in the shower is a lot more like brutal and kind of jarring in a way even though it is the first part of its shot for shop then it, of course he tacks on those other scenes at the end that are like oh what whoa. what other what other, like, well,
4: what other scenes oh uh, we know the, the, <laughs> the, the, the
3: one with ryan Keeley you know the the, the, the <laughs> whole star fishing scene all that stuff and I think the cleanup of the body is a lot more like visceral and kind of just upsetting to me. Yeah. Um, In the book, she was beheaded, actually. Really? Wow. Yeah, I I didn't know that. Um, No one had the balls to do that one. And I like that Vince Vaughn zigs instead of zags instead of doing the exact same thing uh, that the uh, uh, Anthony Perkins did in the first movie. It's a... It's... They make subtle changes that do differentiate it just enough for me while still being a technically shot-for-shot remake. So... Uh, yeah, I, I appreciate it in that way and it's 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 different enough to warrant a viewing and also just a really interesting experiment that you're probably never gonna see again. So in it being completely uh copying of the original, it is in that way also very interesting. So
4: <laughs> I you know what I have a a hot take to say too and and I feel very similarly to you, but to just add on to it. The fact that this got a thirty-something percent, the new, the newer remake got a thirty-something percent versus like the ninety-eight percent the original got is fascinating. Ninety-six, yeah. It's fascinating to me because the acting in the new one, I, I think it would be hilarious for someone to say it was bad. It's not bad at all. They did the yep. exact thing they were supposed to do, and they acted it out well. With it was just the same writing. That mm-hmm. was the only difference. I think Vince Vaughn was a much more convincing serial killer psychopath. He seemed more deranged to me. The, the Perkins was like, a, I think it's more derailing in that one because he's like, oh, just a happy-go-lucky guy. Who, this guy could never be crazy. Mm-hmm. Where you're like, oh, got me. But meanwhile, you're looking at Vince Vaughn. He's, he's got a screw loose. Yeah. And you can see it, and you're like, that is much more believable to and me. And his nervous laugh that he's just like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. there, there's, but see, and I, I, buy, I, I buy that
1: uh, Marion, that Anne Hesh stays and talks to him because he's still Vince Vaughn and he's charismatic and so yes. and and has just playing uh Marion as somebody that's a little more confident and mm-hmm. so I also buy that she would think that she's not in danger because she's just through the entire movie up till mm-hmm. then she's just being very resourceful and even when she's run up against some sort of obstacle she's it feels like she's being a little more conscious about how she outmaneuvers it. And, and so I, I buy it. When they get together, I'm like, yeah, this is an unfortunate choice for her. But uh-huh. it's a lot easier for me to buy it because it's she's mm-hmm. more confident and he is more... Like, she, he's Vince Vaughn. And, and he's creepy, but he's also like, yeah, I would sit down and have a drink with him too. Mm-hmm. Just to see where it goes.
3: Yeah. And, and sorry, I'm talking a lot. But my last defense of uh, this Psycho remake... Is I think this movie smartly is able to make me less invested in what Anne Heche is doing in this movie. They her character is like a it has a subtle riff on the original character, but it's she's more like flirtatious, kind of more soft spoken. Uh, not doesn't quite have the same intensity as. Uh, uh, sorry, is it Janet Leigh? Is that her name? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and. It, it, And once you do get to that inevitable killing scene, I'm more willing to let that go and carry on with the rest of the story with these other characters. Whereas in the original Psycho, I was just sad that we didn't get to spend more time with this character. In this way, I'm like, okay, let's see the full ensemble. Let's see everything that this movie has to offer. Um... So yeah, well, I think it helps you that
1: you have you know you have that cast. So and you know speaking to that uh, that unsettling feeling of like I don't know what's going on, I don't know where where this is taking place, which reality. Uh I think that the peak moment is when it happens it's like a two parter. First uh uh Marion's sister Julian Moore walks in with those headphones. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, She's that, always wearing those headphones. It's just, but it, it just, you know, it shakes you. It's like, what's going on? Wait, what? And then William H. Macy walks in as if he just stepped out of the original with the yeah, hat yeah. and the inflection. It is such a mind fuck.
3: My name's Arbogast, friend. I'm a private investigator.
1: I can see how it opens the movie for criti- criticism, as in like, oh, well, this, is, this doesn't work. But it's exactly what you said. It does work. It throws you off in a way that the original Psycho just can't do anymore because it's not the 60s. You know, it's just like, you got to do something else to to shake audiences today. And that is, it's so perfect because you couldn't do it any other way. Like you couldn't, mm-hmm. you know, this is the only way that you could do it is if you did a Psycho remake, a shot by shot Psycho remake. <laughs> so exactly. it, it's, yeah. it's, pretty, it's pretty brilliant. Uh, and I like the performances. I think that I agree with David, like everybody here is doing what they need to do and they put in... Other than Macy, and I mean, you know, that's part of the trick. But all the other actors, they put their own spin on the characters, and that actually makes it for me was just like more, much more enjoyable. Yeah, who knows how it's gonna age forty years from now if it's gonna sound like even more stilted or whatever. But for for that time, for '98 oh up till now, I think that it's it's the psycho that I would rather watch. You know, mm. it's in color. It's just enough, uh, a little more sexually explicit. I I think that we absolutely needed that masturbation scene, the, the Norman patient scene, <laughs> because it's more uh, more baiting, the better. Yeah, yeah. Well, but it's like he doesn't. He's not completely explicit, but it gives you just that. You know what tells you
3: really that he's a psycho? That. He doesn't clean up there. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I was like, wait, it, I remember, is there like a stain on the wall or is there, just, what's going on here? Like he just kind of zips up and walks he just,
2: out. He just places a bucket under that, that <laughs> picture. Is I didn't it, think
0: he finished. I thought he was just crazy. He just pulled it out and just like for a quick tug because yeah, he's just there yeah. for a minute. I'm done. I mean, that's that's real psycho <laughs> behavior. It's just getting going and then being like, all right, back to the taxes. Either way, yeah. <laughs> e- either
1: way he's, he's a psycho. Either he just did a couple tugs and then moved on or he finished and didn't clean up and just went off to do something
4: else. He's just a three-stroke guy.
1: Uh, whatever the case, that like, guy shouldn't be running a motel.
4: Arbic <laughs> Ass comes in later and they're in the office. He's like, what's this uh, white <laughs> stuff on the wall? He's just like, ah.
1: Um, I like the chemistry between Viggo Mortensen and Anhesh. I think that they are uh, really good. I buy them as a couple because I think that they're a little mm-hmm. more playful. And so he he's being pretty aloof. So I, 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 I'm more inclined to buy that he wouldn't, be panicking about her disappearing. But he also, once she disappears, he acts a little more interested than uh, uh, John Gavin. So I, I, again, I give him the, the edge. And when they finally get to that fight, Viggo Mortensen versus uh, Vince Vaughn is something that's a lot more visually exciting than John Gavin versus Anthony Perkins. <laughs> oh, <laughs> and I Not agree. just because of the golf club. It's just that... You know, they're two dudes that could be action stars. So I, you know, Vince Vaughn was in The Lost World either before this movie or right after this movie. So he can yeah. he can do way more than comedy. It's
3: just that and, uh, he can and dodge a wrench. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, and Lila Crane actually gets a gets to show some agency here instead of just backing yes. up and screaming like she actually gets a gets the final kick in on the uh mm-hmm. on uh Norman Bates there. You're terminated, Charlie fucker,
0: and more is the best. Yep. You know, stand by it. The the fun thing to think about as we head into the second half of this podcast is that somewhere uh he was already old, but Michael Haneke watched this and he was like, I'm going to do this with my own movie a few years <laughs> from now. And <laughs> I'm going to remake my own movie shot for shot in a, just a different time. So, uh we gave this the treatment I did as best as I could and I'm so glad we had the franchise killers here to really uh, step it up for me uh, <laughs> but I think it's time to move to real talk and uh, discuss a, a true all-time classic masterpiece and then a movie that Vince Vaughn was in yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs>